Lord, this morning as we look into your word and are reminded of the fact that Christ is victorious through the cross and through the open grave, we come to realize that we can participate and be a part of that victory, that triumph, that declaration of your uh, winning over the grave as we place our faith in you and as we seek to exalt you in our lives. As worship becomes the daily expression, the motivation for every moment that we live, and the desire that we have in life is not only to please you personally, but to draw others into worship of the Almighty One, the One who has triumphed. And God, I pray this morning that your spirit even now would would begin the work of convicting hearts and leading them into faith if they have not already believed in Jesus as the only means of salvation. That they would confess their their sins, that they would repent and turn their hearts and lives to you. Lord, as we look at the preeminent example of Jesus, the one who suffered for sins, the just For the unjust that he might bring us to God, we remember what was necessary in order for us to enjoy eternal life. And by coming and suffering, you set the example of what it would take for us to show the gospel through our lives. Lord, help us to understand your word more fully, more clearly. And may the gospel shine more brightly through our lives as we submit ourselves to you. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through 1 Peter. We've been dealing with uh, a very difficult subject over the last several weeks, the, the subject of suffering. It's not about your best life now. It's, it's about the best life that you can have as you anticipate life with God. Is my, is my uh, microphone on? Okay, we'll make sure. It happens one way. It happens for you as you submit yourself to walking in the steps of Christ. Not following after the course of this world, but following after the steps that have been set for us by the example given to us by Jesus Christ. You know, in America, we have been relatively preserved, preserved from suffering. And so I think we have this perception, or at least there's a, there's a danger of a perception of Christianity in America that can, that can be, it can be happy and joyful and free of worry and, and free of pain, and yet the life you've been called to is a life of suffering. As you look around the world, you see that suffering is built into the fabric of culture. These statistics are dated, but uh, from the Open Doors website, they say there are over 340 Christians who are living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination every single year. 4,761 Christians were killed last year for their faith. 
4,488 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked in various countries. And 4,277 believers were detained without trial. They were arrested and sentenced or imprisoned because of their faith just last year. And we have not experienced that kind of persecution. The levels of persecution that you might experience is a measure of of criticism or, or maybe not getting that promotion or maybe being fired because of a conviction to stand up for Christ, maybe being silenced because you're not gonna be able to speak for Christ or pray about Christ or talk about Jesus in your workplace. That is the form of, of persecution that we experience. But, but persecution was built in. It's hardwired into Christianity. It's, it's hardwired into the, the very foundations of the, the beginning of the church. We see this at the very front end of the book of Acts as this church is just beginning to, to flourish and take root. We see it in the lives of Peter and John who, who the religious leaders there in Jerusalem imprisoned them and then the apostles and beat them because of their commitment to preaching the name, the name of Jesus. And of course, about eight to 10 years into this new revolution of this church movement, Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, was instrumental in a persecution in Jerusalem that scattered the church about eight to 10 years after things got started. And everywhere, once the Apostle Paul was converted on the Damascus Road. He had that experience with the light shining into his life and, and the gospel shining on his heart and, and Christ speaking to him and him coming to faith in Jesus. And then from that moment on, Paul would experience persecution everywhere he went. So that in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29, he'll write to this church of Philippi, where the Apostle Paul was flogged and beaten and put in prison and he and Silas sang, you remember, and the prison doors were opened and uh, that was the place that Paul began this work of ministry in Philippi. And this is what he says to the church who continues in that place. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in any way, in, in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Is that part of the gospel message that you heard? Believe in Jesus so that you can suffer. Believe in Jesus so that you can endure hardship for the name. Well, <laughs> that, was, that was the banner written over the New Testament church because it is hardwired into the Christian faith. It is instrumental, it is implicit in faith in Jesus to walk in Christ's steps and Jesus, even in speaking about what true discipleship was like, said, take up your cross daily and follow after me. That is Jesus' definition of what to expect if you decide to believe in him because 
suffering is built in to the Christian life. But so often when we experience suffering, and maybe you're a little like me, you find yourself asking some questions. Like, what did I do to deserve this? Where is God in all of this? Does he care about me? Does he know about my situation? Does God have a purpose for this? How, How long do I have to endure? And is there any hope in the midst of hard things? Peter, in writing these words that we're going to see this morning in our passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18 to the end of the chapter, concludes this section that we started back in chapter 2, verse 13, running to the end of chapter 3. And he he ends with this crescendo note. Chapter 3, verse 18. We're going to spend about 99% of our time in this verse. And there's some really hard interpretive things that uh, we'll read about here in verses 18 to 22. If you want to know about those things, I'm not going to talk about them during the message because it's going to take too long for us to really go over them. But what I will do is we spent about 45 minutes. We had a little workshop after the service in the first service, and we talked through them. I'm I'm happy to do that after the service um, once we're finished so we can move through some of these interpretive challenges and we can ask and answer questions together and and figure out maybe what this means in verses 19 to 22. But we'll spend our time in verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Last week, the theme was God is sovereign over your suffering. This week, the theme is that God is victorious in your suffering. Isn't it interesting that from a human perspective, the time when the adversary, the devil, seemed to win The time when Jesus seemed to experience defeat by dying on the cross, where all of his opponents, all of the people against him finally had their way. The time when it seems that Jesus was at his lowest. He was conquered. He becomes the conqueror. And he sets for us the example of the pathway of experiencing triumph in Jesus. We experience victory. We experience triumph. It's going to spill into these next several chapters or the next two chapters, the next several verses that we're going to be looking at in chapter 4 and chapter 5. We're going to see that suffering is the equipment. It's the armor that you wear. It's the preparation that you put on so you're ready to be victorious in the Christian life. You can be victorious as you walk in Christ's steps as he walked in terms of suffering. So I want to look at this. There are two main, uh, two main points to our time this morning. 
I want you to see that your suffering, first of all, points to Christ. As we think about the, the suffering of Christ, as we think about triumph in victory, you experience victory through suffering as your suffering points to Christ. Notice this with me. Verse 18, the first phrase. For Christ also suffered once for sins. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Now, there are two words in this phrase, the word for and the word also that, 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 that create hard lines, hard connections into the verses that have gone before. And we see from verse 17, chapter 3, verse 17, it says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And as soon as you read that verse, you might be asking yourself the question, it is God's will? How can it be God's will? Why do I have to go through these hard things? The answer is found in verse 18. The word for is the word because. It's the word, it's a marker of cause or reason. The word also is the word chi, it's the connective, it's a conjunction in the Greek language. It, it, it provides, again, a hard line between verse 17 and verse 18 to help you understand the reason for suffering according to God's will, and the answer is in verse 18. You suffer according to God's will because Christ suffered. <laughs> so what does that mean? Well, it means that because of your new identity, because of the person that God has made you to be, because of, of being called into this new relationship, because of you are no longer a citizen here, but you're now a citizen of heaven, because you are a living stone like he is a living stone pulled into this new relationship with God, he has set his affection on you, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and because of that, you are entirely different from the rest of the world and thus open to the same suffering experienced by Jesus. You, through faith, have now chosen, rather than walking according to the course of this world, you have done what Peter encourages us to do in chapter 2, verse 21. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You're not walking in the course of this world anymore. You're walking in the steps of Jesus, which means you're walking according to the will of God. You have embraced that will of God in becoming a believer through faith in Jesus Christ, and you've put on a whole new life, a whole new life which is characterized by suffering. Surprise! That's what you signed up for. It's implicit in the gospel because it is the only way the gospel is clear through the cross. The cross is clear through following the example of Christ in terms of walking in the midst of suffering. But there's also encouragement. There's encouragement because when you experience suffering, you don't have to ask the question, Does God, has God forgotten me? Is God trying to discipline me? If you know that your life is ordered towards the things that are pleasing to him and you are suffering according to his will. You have chosen to do what is right. You're zealous for righteousness and then suffering comes. You can be assured that God's affection is on you. 
and God has set his affection on you and granted you the privilege of shining Christ through your life. Suffering, as we have said, is the canvas on which the glory of God in the gospel is put on display. You want your life to be a canvas? You want people to see Jesus through your life? You want to be what Jesus commands or commends the disciples to do into, into, into ushering the, the nations to come in faith and choosing to believe in Jesus, the fulfilling this great commission. They'll do that through your words, but they will do that as they see Jesus in you, as they see your response to suffering. This morning, we're going to have a, a baby dedication. And uh, if you need to go get your kids, this would be the time to do that. I know this is probably a strange time for us to do a baby dedication. Who does a baby dedication when you talk about suffering? Who, who, who would ever consider doing a baby dedication when you're talking about hard things? But I want you to re- recognize that as a parent, whether you're dedicating your child this morning or you have children of your own, or you're a grandparent and and seeking to to encourage and help your grandkids to, to, to grow in the Christian life, you can't do that unless you prepare them for suffering. Maybe it's harder for us to recognize that here in America, but it's gonna become very easy in the future. Because suffering is built in to the Christian life, in order to help prepare your kids for the Christian life, you must prepare them for suffering. You must prepare them for gospel witness. You must prepare them to walk in the steps of Christ. And by walking in the steps of Christ, they are embracing every day, taking up their cross daily and following Jesus. Peter has made direct references to the suffering of Christ from the very beginning of this letter. In chapter one, verse two, he says, for obedience to Jesus uh, Christ and sprinkling of his blood. In chapter one, verse 11, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets prophesied when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In chapter one, verses 18 and 19, he says, knowing that you were not ransomed from the feudal ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Chapter two, verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Chapter two, verse seven, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Chapter two, verse 21, for to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The example of suffering has been hardwired into this church, hardwired into this letter because Peter wants this church to know the suffering you're experiencing, you should not be surprised. It's intrinsic to the Christian life. Be ready. We've seen this first phrase that your suffering points to Christ. We'll see in the next couple of phrases that your suffering points to victory. Your suffering points to victory. That really is the anthem of this entire section, this entire passage that we're looking at this morning. Your suffering points to victory. And it does that in three different ways. 
First, we see your suffering points to victory over sin. Notice, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Your greatest enemy in this life, your greatest enemy in the world is not Satan. Your greatest enemy is sin. Your greatest enemy is yourself. It is the affections that you have that set themselves against the affections of God. We find from Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and come short of the glory. Of course, come short of the glory of God. But as we've been studying glory, we've come to understand that glory is more than just some nebulous term, that the the glory of God is kind of the the essence of all that God is, his presence manifested in his his character, manifest in his person, manifest in his words, manifest in his standards. The glory of God are everything that would make up who God is. And when we recognize who we are in ourselves, we come to terms with the fact that we fall short of the standard of glory. You cannot measure up to God's glory. You cannot emulate his perfection. You cannot meet his standards. You and I have fallen short because of sin. Satan may tempt you. He might oppose you. He might allure you. He might pressure you. He may, by permission of God, as we saw a week ago, he may kill you, but he cannot destroy you. Because God is sovereign over that. The thing that can get in the way of fellowship with God is sin. And ultimately, sin gets in the way of fellowship with God when we choose not to believe in God to begin with. We find from Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages or the penalty of sin is death. But Christ came to conquer sin. Christ came to declare victory over sin. And he did that, and we see that in, in at least two ways in our passage this morning. First, he was victorious over sin by living a perfect life. It said he, that he... Um, the just for the unjust. He met the qualifications, the standards that God had set for his life. He did that by living this perfect life as we saw, or that we see in chapter three, verse 18, the just for the unjust. This is the righteous for the unrighteous. This, this word dikaios in the Greek, which is the word for righteousness, and, and the prefix ah, which is not, to help provide this contrast between that which is righteous and that which is not. He was righteous, as Peter says here. And as we see in chapter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus was perfect in every way. Jesus measured up to the full standard of the law. Jesus accomplished righteousness by living righteously on the earth. Second, he was victorious over sin, as we see in that he, um, he, was, being, he was put to death in the flesh, excuse me, and made alive in the spirit. His death and subsequent resurrection demonstrated victory over the grave, victory over sin. 
He was victorious in this way as well. There's some grammatical challenges about these words being put to death in the flesh and made alive by the Spirit. We're not going to go into the the, the details of that, if you want to know more, come up here and we'll talk about that after the service. But I think the faithful conclusion to this passage and the, 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 the faithful rendering of what this means is to recognize that while Jesus was put to death in the flesh and made alive in his spirit, it wasn't that he didn't formerly exist in spirit. We know from from John chapter one, that the, that the word became flesh, that uh, in, in, in verse one it says the word um, was in the beginning with God, right? Sorry. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. That word was Jesus. Jesus preexisted before he became a baby, And so it wasn't that his spirit all of a sudden became alive or was enlivened at his birth and his resurrection. It existed before. But I think what helps is Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul says it this way, also with the the banner of his victory over over those who are uh, of faith, he says, and he is before all things, And in him him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So it wasn't that Jesus didn't preexist, that he was made alive in some way after his resurrection because he didn't exist before. What it's talking about is that his resurrection paved the way for life in the future. He was the firstborn from the dead. He was the, he was the one who, who set the path for us to enjoy victory over sin and we in Christ can experience that same life through faith in Jesus. He was the forerunner of that kind of life, that kind of being made alive that we can participate in as we participate in Christ through faith. We participate in his death. We participate in his life. Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this morning, if you have, you have your communion cup and bread, we hold this in our hand and we celebrate a remembrance of the body in the blood of Jesus, not because we believe there's anything Uh, salvific about taking the elements. We don't believe this is the physical body and blood of Christ. We believe it's just a symbol of the broken body of Christ and the symbol of the blood of Jesus. We come to understand that as we look as we look into the word and, and recognize what Jesus has accomplished for us that it was through his suffering that we can enjoy life with God. It was through his brokenness that we find in Isaiah chapter 53 that through his wounds, you're healed. That's what it cost. It cost a broken body and spilled blood for the sake of us enjoying life with God through faith. This morning, as you take the, the bread in your hands, we remember the broken body of Jesus. We, 
remember his work of, of enduring the stripes, the wounds that God inflicted upon him through the instrumentation of wicked men. And it's through the pathway of suffering that we can experience victory in Christ over sin. He was victorious over sin. We find next that he was victorious over death. We, we see that in two ways here in verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. And at the end, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He was victorious over death in that he suffered and died once for all. You know that in the Jewish religious system, the sacrifices that needed to be made were sacrifices that would happen every single time there was a sin. At least that's how it was prescribed. So every time there was some measure of falling out of the standard that God had set, any time they, they broke the law, they would need to come to the temple. They would need to bring a sacrifice. They would need to slit the throat of that bull or that lamb or that goat, whatever it was, and they needed to let that blood be spilled out as a substitute, as an expression of the life that had been taken to grant life for the one who had sinned. Jesus, in suffering once for sin, demonstrated that his substitution for life, his life for our life, was complete. It was finished. It was full. It satisfied the standard that the Father had set. The condition had finally been met in Christ. He did it once for all. Hebrews 9 Chapter 12 says he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice paved the way for us to be saved once for all and guaranteed as his spirit lives and indwells in our heart that exchange had happened through faith. Jesus died for us on the cross, was raised again, offered life for us. And when you believe that once for all exchange takes place where Jesus saves you for all time, he declares you righteous because of the righteousness of Christ and brings you into relationship with God the Father. Do you have that relationship with Jesus this morning? Well, that's what the, the cup illustrates. It illustrates that, that blood that had been shed for us, the, the lamb's blood or the dove's blood or whatever that sacrifice was. It illustrates that atoning blood, but especially illustrates the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. This morning, as we, as we think about the blood of Christ, we think about his victory over death. Jesus Christ is victorious over the world. He is victorious. He describes his triumph. We see that here two different ways. In verse 18, it says that he might bring us to God, which means he has conquered and triumphed over the sin that ruined things at the beginning of the, wor of the world. And he has called us to himself. He's purchased us back. He's made a way through his blood, through forgiveness of sins. 
At the very end of this, in verse 22, it all kind of comes together when it says, who has gone into heavens, into the heavens, and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers being subjected to him. He is in a place of authority because he is victorious. And it happened in a way that you would never expect. It happened in a way of humility. It happened in a way of submission. It happened in the way of suffering. And Jesus, in setting this example, showed us how we can also experience victory and triumph. It is experienced through Christ as we're willing to walk in his steps, as we're willing to, to lay off the pleasures of this life and embrace the hard things that God introduces into our lives and trust him in the difficulties to demonstrate that he is triumphant. May Jesus be triumphant in our lives this week. And may people have the opportunity to see that in you as the pressures of life can't get you down because you are rooting and anchoring your hope in the victory of Christ in a future day, not in the present one, in that there are hard things that happen, but ultimately your hope is set on the future hope of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Thanks for coming this morning. If you want to know about verses 19 to 21, come down here. We'll talk about that a little bit. Thanks for coming. God bless you. Thank you.